0: Okay, um, uh, sorry, Frances, how do you pronounce your last name, just to be sure? (laughs) Sorry, I
1: meant to say that. Uh, My surname is pronounced Harding, which I know is confusing. There's
0: a weird E on the end for no good reason. That was our guess, but we were like, it could be Hardinge, it could be Hardinga, we weren't sure, but okay, now we know. (laughs) Oh, I've had all the variants. Okay, well, we, we like to at least know how to pronounce the guest's name by the time we
2: introduce them to the audience, so. Yeah, even though we've started recording and the podcast is rolling, now's the time to ask. So, good timing. <laughs> well, who cares? It's e-
0: it's totally edited
2: as we said. No, I'm keeping this. I'm keeping it.
0: All right. Uh welcome to our podcast, which is called Fire the Cannon. And if you're a regular listener, you know that we do a little mix between reading like classic books and talking about them and also interviews with contemporary writers who I like. My name's Rachel, by the way. I'm the one who's more bold in terms of contacting people. My co-hosts. You want to introduce yourself? I'm Jackie, and I'm so
2: meek and shy, and I <laughs> never. very shy to people. <laughs> that's not true. I'm not shy, but I, I don't contact people. <laughs> Rachel that's does true. that. And anyway, you're listening to Fire the Cannon this week. Of course, we're doing an author interview, which we're really excited about because we both really like this author. Uh, Rachel, of course, has read much more of her work than I have. But we're working uh, with Frances Harding. <laughs> yes, that's right. We're working Hi, together Frances. now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you very
1: much for having me.
0: Yes, I'm. I'm so excited i would say that francis's books in terms of myself are like drop everything books when they're out i will read it like right away so if i'm unless it's something that i have to
2: read like for the podcast i will drop everything and i'll read that book please do not be holding a baby when (laughs) francis releases her next book it will be dangerous your blood will be on your hands francis babies are bouncy actually (laughs) (laughs) their bones aren't usually fully
0: knitted together but It'll be fine. I'm hoping that's not the voice of experience. <laughs> well, one of my sisters, when she was little, when she was three, we had another sister born, and the three-year-old didn't really like her. And at one point, she was holding her on the couch, and this is our co-host Rebecca Jackie, who's not here today. Mm-hmm. But Rebecca was holding the baby Lydia. I saw her like look around, and then kind of drop her arms <laughs> like straight forward, and Lydia rolled off her arms onto the floor and bounced a little bit, but she was totally
2: fine. And that that was the day Frances released her first novel. <laughs> um, no, so we're, we're definitely so excited to have you. Um, would you like to kind of give a brief introduction of yourself, little elevator pitch for who you are?
1: Well, I'm Frances Harding, and I write fairly dark and invariably strange <laughs> books for children and the YA readership. Uh, one of them involves a tree that eats lies. Uh, another one can best be described as a kind of comedy fantasy historical spy thriller crime caper murder mystery set in an alternative <laughs> world with uh, a homicidal goose and floating coffee houses. Um, you get the idea. I mean, there's, there's another one that's set entirely underground, which has mind control perfume and exploding cheeses and evil expression designers. Oh, and glowing Venus flytraps.
2: So, do you have do you have like a wall of words at which you throw darts and you say yes, mind control, perfume? There we go. That's the topic of the next book. I mean, all these ideas made perfect sense in my head. I'm sure they do. <laughs> <laughs> Francis, um is famous for always wearing a black hat. I-, I presume you take it off in the shower and in sleep, though it may be attached to your scalp. I don't know. <laughs> uh,
1: I do take it off. I, I mean, usually uh, I-, I put it on any time I leave the house. Now, as you can see on this particular Zoom call, I am wearing my hat, but that's because my image is leaving the house. Therefore, uh, it, 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 yes. it, it felt appropriate.
2: And we cleared up all the glitching. When she first joined the call, she was doing this wonderful robotic uh, space seizure dance, which was the result of camera issues. But now she just looks like a normal person. Yes, mm-hmm. yes.
1: Exactly. My, my stipulation is complete now.
0: For a moment, they could see the true me, but everything's
2: fine now. <laughs> yes, we've buffered. <laughs>
0: I actually was wondering if you would wear the hat for the interview. I know that... So Terry Pratchett also wore a similar hat correct correct Uh,
1: it is actually a coincidence i mean personally i think the late sir terry deserves all the tributes in the world and i actually think he carried off (laughs) that hat that style of hat with a lot more panache than than me or or virtually anybody else Um, but no i just i've always loved this style of hat and in fact i'd i'd been wearing um fedoras and trilbys on a kind of daily basis before i got a book contract It's just that when I did become an
0: author, no one succeeded in stopping me. (laughs) Well, that's interesting to know. I know there is another writer in her author photo. She has some like very, very stark black eyeliner, like on the bottom lash line. And uh, she in interviews has talked about like cultivating, you know, a particular look. And it's kind of like you put that on and you're instantly recognizable. And that is what people notice. And it kind of distracts from anything else. But it sounds like this is just your style that you had even before <laughs> becoming a writer. Yep, absolutely. I, I just look like this.
1: <laughs> and, and all the waistcoats as well. I mean, I just have a lot of waistcoats because I like them. Yeah. And as I say, people just failed to stop me wearing them.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we've had another author who actually maybe two who are interested in like period costume. There's something about like uh, YA and fantasy authors and a converging interest in the past and interest in clothing. And I love it because it's just so much more interesting than, you know, I'm, I've am i got my like year round uniform of leggings. Cardigan. So. <laughs> yeah, cardigan and leggings. <laughs>
1: well, in my case, I'm also a LARPA and I, yeah. I used to be part of a historical reenactment group. So uh, yeah, I have I have quite a lot of old fashioned clothing, not all of which I wear on a daily basis. But yeah, I have I have more Regency dresses than any sensible person would have.
0: Do you find that the research that you do for your kind of like LARPing and costumery, that that is very helpful in terms of your writing? Because I would say most of your books, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one is sort of contemporary and then the other ones, they're not necessarily set on Earth, but they're set in worlds that are similar to past Earth, Earth adjacent.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: Yes, that's largely true. Uh, there is one book, as you say, that's set in the modern day. And then there are three that are actually set in our past, but with mm. supernatural elements of various sorts. Uh, and then there are others that are set in alternative worlds, but sort of past influenced. Um, a lot of them don't map exactly onto a specific period, I, you know, because they'll have been shaped by their own history in ways that, that don't entirely tally with ours. But i 've drawn inspiration from from lots of things in in our in our world's past, uh, so yes, yes that's very true um, as for how much role playing and historical reenactment has helped with that, I think quite a lot uh, certainly, if you have first hand experience of trying to run an eighteenth century costume, then you know, that that can feed in. Uh, a lot of my fellow historical reenactors were extremely well informed and fascinating to talk to, and you acquire all sorts of interesting tidbits and anecdotes and slang and swear words, etc. Talking to them mm-hmm. and some very interesting songs. Um, so so a lot of that a lot of th- that went into the books. Interesting.
2: I wonder what type of historical reenactment were you doing? Can you share? Was this like a particular historical site or battle you mentioned? running so I imagine something terrible must have happened or maybe you were just playing a nice game
1: (laughs) well I was part of a a group called the Dueling, um, Dueling Society and we basically put on Regency era interactive murder mysteries for the public in stately homes uh english
2: heritage let us do this so like pride and prejudice with murder kind of (laughs) yeah sounds like you're wrong jackie (laughs) this is i i am the voice of the dumb american that's what i am on this podcast no
1: (laughs) well there there, there was some marriage market stuff and 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 there there would sometimes be a certain amount of romance but a lot more skullduggery (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and dark mm. secrets
2: <laughs> skull talkery i haven't heard that word in so long it's, it's an
1: underused word mm-hmm. and and a lot of blackmailing and so basically we'd be we'd have these shows for about four hours and because they were um interactive a lot of it was improvised so we're effectively playing our characters running around on adrenaline four hours uh fighting duels um demonstrating regency dances blackmail each other loudly in the grotto and
2: and things like that and generally um, behaving extremely badly but in in a period and educational fashion okay so that was what you were doing but what was the job i'm just kidding <laughs> that was a that was a bad joke <laughs> i don't know if it was bad i just didn't understand it. <laughs> so that's what you used to like doing yeah yeah
0: i mean it just felt like basically some nice
1: people and lent us a stately home and lots of public that we could play with that sounds very fun honestly
2: interesting um I did. I I wanted to ask. So um, you definitely have an affinity for certain types of settings, like Victorian era seems to be one of them, which I love because my house is an old Victorian house. And so I'm getting really into Victorian stuff. But also I noticed like a lot of your books seem to be like centered around island life, but not like in the island life that a lot of us would think of it like, you know, laying on a beach drinking. Tropical. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But you have at least I know Deep Light is like very, very focused on island communities, and then you've got Gullstruck, and you've got even Tree of Lives. Uh, Tree of Lies, rather, is set on an island, right? And the new book Unraveler is
0: basically an island because of what is surrounding it.
2: So, like, what where does that come from in your psyche? Is that an intentional choice on your part? Is it that, you know, the UK is an island and that's just kind of what you feel is like home, or?
1: Um, I mean, the UK is an island. I mean, there, there is a certain... A local mentality where we actually don't think of it that way. We think of it as a teensy, teensy continent. I think we're a bit prone to that. Oh, yeah. yeah it's, it's not, I don't think it's particularly healthy. But I guess there are a number of things that make writing stories set in islands particularly appealing. One of them is, of course, that you can strand people. Um, you, can, mm. you can trap them with unfriendly communities In, in, in the way that I do in, in, in the lie tree Oh, I said tree um, of lies, sorry, lie tree oh, okay. <laughs> Same difference You can have a whole, whole range of islands of different size As in deep light Including some tiny ones where you might find yourself Running around a relatively small rock Trying to escape from something dangerous <laughs> And the other, the other lovely thing is that The weather and the sea then become characters
0: hmm. They are never mm.
1: far away they can affect the tone and the mood, and they can even uh, intrude upon the plot action. Oh, and imperil people. I like imperiling people.
0: In my books, in my books. <laughs> it, it is a good thing that you became a writer in that case. I think so too. To give you yes. a, a more healthy outlet.
1: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I could just terrorize the tiny people in my brain.
2: <laughs> it's, it's interesting. I mean, I never thought about you know, those those types of choices, right? Like I want I want the ocean and the weather and everything to be like very, very important. And obviously, you can have weather not on islands, I suppose. Um, I don't know, Jackie, I don't know if you can have weather (laughs) anywhere else. (laughs) Unclear. I mean, I live in the Ohio River Valley. And I mean, we have weather in the sense that there is something happening outside, but it kind of is just uh, stuck here because it's a valley. So yeah, I mean, that's interesting. And this is something we always have to kind of ask, but you know, how did you come to be a writer? Everybody's path is so different and I always love hearing the stories. I
1: can't remember a time when I wasn't trying to write. I was an addicted reader. (laughs) My parents were very encouraging. They were enablers. Basically we had some books sort of placed under our noses
0: pretty much from the yeah, from the get-go um <laughs> so okay so that works because that's what I'm going to do to my children and I I like to have some confirmation that you can just say oh look at this and then they'll read it well apparently we had little cloth
1: books that we could chew even when we were babies oh <laughs> so you know books were just things that were always around and mm-hmm. did you have do you have siblings I do I have a younger sister, 11 months younger. Wow, Irish and, twins. Uh, yes, when, when we were very young, I remember, I remember trying to tell her stories when we were both trying to get to sleep, sort of serial style. Mm-hmm. Of course, I was also trying to get to sleep, which meant that sometimes when I was <laughs> trying to tell her the next instalment, I had to remember what things I'd said in a half-awake fog the night before. And
2: that's where the, like, the mind-control perfume comes in. You're just like kind of sleep-talking.
0: <laughs> Did she ever catch you making mistakes? Was she ever like, uh, Francis, the horse was green? <laughs> yeah, occasionally. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but
1: then I'd just, you know, correct. Gaslight her. <laughs> no, it, no, it wasn't. <laughs> but yeah, that, definitely some comedy stories, but also at least one time-travel chiller involving a haunted castle. Ooh. I can't remember many more details than that,
2: though, I'm afraid. And did she grow up to be a great lover of books also? Because I'm bringing this back around to what Rachel said. I mean, did it work on both of you or did one of you turn out to be like the great enemy of books? Okay.
0: No, no, no. I think think if anything, she reads more than I do. Oh, wow. Well, I guess if she's not writing books, maybe she has a little extra time to read them. So I've heard from some writers... And like I read different blog posts, whatever uh, I know. Like for example, Joe Walton. I don't know if you've read any of her stuff, but she reads so much. She has a, a like a monthly blog post of how many books she's read basically and it's always like 30 plus i think she's a speed reader as well but then we talked to other writers who have said like you know i don't get to read that often because maybe i have a full-time job plus i write or like i don't necessarily want to be influenced by this or whatever so i'm just wondering like do you still read a lot and if so like i mean what are you reading now or do you have any recommendations
1: uh i'm still an enthusiastic reader but i'm not a fast reader so I'm, I am not one of mm. these people that sort of chases through tons of books. Uh, in fact, mm. I, I have uh, a recurrent problem with the, the fact that my to-be-read pile
2: is some bookcases. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, at least it's an organized pile, albeit a very large one.
1: Yes. And in some cases, a double-shelved pile. <laughs> um, well, one of the things <laughs> they don't tell you is <laughs> that when you're an author, books just show up. They just turn up in the post. (laughs) And it's lovely. It's a a really nice problem to have.
0: Who sends them? um, Publishing companies, things like that. And they just, there they are. They want pull quotes or they're like, you might like this. I I think a bit of both. But they turn up Mm. faster than I can
1: read them. I mean, which is a nice problem (laughs) to have. But I am going to die under a pile of books.
2: Maybe they're trying to kill you.
0: There are worse ways to go. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's pretty much how I'd want to go. Oh, no. Like, get rid of the competition. <laughs> I mean, it'll work
2: because I can't get rid of them. Of course not. No, that's cruel. They're <laughs> course, children. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't know if it was publishing companies or if it was just aspiring writers that are like, Francis. read my book, please. <laughs> I, I don't think they know where I live. Ah. No, I think it's it's mainly just publishing companies. <laughs> That's for the best, it sounds like. You would really be buried.
0: <laughs> That's, um, yeah, I, I recently moved. And uh, of course, we moved my books with me. And so I have been saying that lately I'm able to tell people that I have over a ton of books and that I mean it literally and I know for a fact (laughs) that it's true because they had to weigh the truck that was carrying the books so I I also uh I think I would say I have three TBR bookshelves but some of them are like books I want to reread TBR are yeah exactly to be reread some of them I do sometimes now get rid of books once, once I've read them because
1: then I've read them and I feel I can do that. It's the ones I haven't read where I, mm. I can't get the word because I might love them. Yeah, I I am denying them. I'm denying that opportunity to be loved by me. <laughs>
2: I, I hope you have a good structural engineer like analyzing the where the water table is and the soil and all this because you could you could just sink into a sinkhole and be gone forever, Rachel. With that ton of books, I mean, I
0: spread them out. I spread them around okay. the house. So okay, it good. We don't want them balanced. <laughs> Centered. I think I said this in the last episode, maybe, but I very much personify my books. So the Marie Kondo thing of like sparking joy, whatever, that has helped me because I also think to me, I like to think, okay, a book, it is. It's goal in life is for someone to read it. And if I'm not going to read it or if I'm not going to love it enough, that means someone else will. And if I can find it in my heart to let this book go fulfill its purpose elsewhere, then the book will be happier.
2: <laughs> but if you hate the book, you keep it? No, 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 no.
0: Because if I hate the book, I'm like, it's okay, little book. You're not a bad book. Someone else will love you, but not me. So I'll mm. let you go find that person. And then that helps. <laughs>
2: because I suggested to Rachel yesterday that we read Of Mice and Men for one of our upcoming books. And she said, I'm not doing doing that. <laughs> so I wonder, like, <laughs> do you keep it in your house just so no one else can become saddened by it? No, I don't own Of Mice and Men. Well, Francis, I was going to ask, I was hearing recently and talking with someone else about this. Uh, there's been this, like, dialogue going on in online spaces for a couple years now about whether or not each person um, has an internal monologue. And apparently people without internal monologues are much more likely to be speed readers. They can just look at it and take oh, it gosh. in and they don't have to, like, have their brains read it out to them and I'm not like that I'm like you I'm not a slow reader but I enjoy savoring words and yeah Sometimes I go back and I read the same sentence multiple times, or I just look at the same word for a long time because I just like it. A deliberate reader. Also, I have a little bit of synesthesia and I can sort of taste the words. They all align with different foods for me. I don't think I've ever said that, but it's true. So I I, sometimes if I get a really nice word, I'm like, I just want to sit with that one for a minute. What a great word. (laughs) That's you. (laughs) Yeah. So I wonder, you know, what is your experience of reading? Like, do you have an internal monologue and is that why you feel like you're slower or?
1: Uh, I definitely do. Have or can have an internal monologue. I'm not sure that all my thoughts and feelings are filtered through it. I don't have a kind of perpetual narrator, um, <laughs> but I certainly can run through my thoughts in in my voice in my head. Mm. And I know exactly what you mean about sometimes taking time to read a book slowly and savor it. And I, you know, I quite often do that. Mm. And there are definitely books that I think of more as sipping books. Rather than glugging books, <laughs> so I um, oh I like that anything by Mervyn Peak I'd say sort of that those are sipping books just because the language <laughs> is so good.
2: Yeah, I've I've seen some people online say things like you know it's, there are plenty of really great books that are like can't put it down, got to read the whole thing at once, but it doesn't make a book bad to not do that. You know, some of yeah. the books you don't want to glug through. <laughs> yeah,
0: Mm-mm. that's true. Speaking of like good language, so I'm gonna sell Francis's books for a little bit. Her her books are, are wonderful. Like, the writing is amazing. Mm-hmm. We discussed this a little bit over email, but they tend to be marketed towards, like, middle-grade readers or young adult readers. But the way that they're written is not what stereotypically would be called juvenile. Like, the writing mm-hmm. is wonderful. I think anyone would enjoy them, especially if there's an adult who, like... Is prejudiced against YA, which fine, like you're not the target audience, but you I think that you would really like Francis's books. So I think they're great for basically any age. And I actually I gave Jackie Deep Light, which Mm -hmm. I think was the book before Unraveler, maybe. Mm -hmm. But I gave it to her and I was like, oh, I hadn't read it yet. The description, it's about a friendship between two people. This will be perfect for us. We're best friends. And I gave it to her, and like a little bit of spoilers, but it's about (laughs) a very toxic friendship. So as I was reading it, I'm like, oh no, <laughs> what was I yeah, saying? Yeah, I'm not going to gonna spoil the end, but
2: I'm just going to say the friendship doesn't go well. And uh, I thought Rachel, I didn't know you felt this way about us. Which one am I? Am I hard or am I jilt? <laughs> but yeah, so they they are delightful and they're really well written. The
0: themes are are very mature, like in unraveler the first part of the book had a feel to me of i read the first book in the witcher series and there's sort of that vibe but for maybe the first 25 percent of the book and then as it goes on you're like oh just like with every francis harding book society is the problem <laughs> <laughs> it's not individual bad people and by the end you realize the book is about therapy it's like about the importance of therapy <laughs> But also it's these two kids going around and dealing with people who've been cursed and people who are cursing others. Uh, the themes are just very mature, but presented in a way that a child would also find delightful to read about.
2: Yeah, I saw the synopsis of that book and I thought that is really intriguing to me. I mean, I think they're all intriguing, but some things just speak to individual people more than others. And I thought that, yes, that's
0: good. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was great. I, I cried at the end. On oh. the last page I was just crying and I'm like, oh excellent. She got me in <laughs> the last page. My work here is done.
1: <laughs> so I've made you two cry and spoiled your friendship.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is actually the last episode of the podcast. Jackie's yeah. turning into a sea monster. Can't deal with it anymore.
2: We're over. Yeah. Oh, so you decided I'm jelt. Okay. Right. Yeah. That's been decided. Um, yeah. No. And you've become you've imperiled us in our real lives. No. Um, so I was gonna say you grew up in a in a old house, I believe. Um, I saw that on your website, which hold up if you have not been to Francis Harding's website. It is an experience, <laughs> not mobile friendly. I will add. No, yeah. go to it on a on a desktop. But it is fun. It's like a game. Yes. How did you come up with that? Did you come up with that? Uh,
1: yeah. Well, I came up with all the concepts in the website, including the yeah. hidden story where you need to solve all the puzzles to kind of get the next episodes, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I I got a talented artist to do the actual making it look nice. Yeah. Uh, she was she was local to Oxford as well, and 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 very kindly produced all the uh, all the art. My webmaster made it all work from a technical point of view. (laughs) That's
2: awesome. Yeah, it's like a little town and you can go like, this is the post office and this is how you contact her and then this is where we go to the library and here's the list of the books. It's so interesting. It's cute. But there's a puzzle you have to solve. Yes.
0: It makes me happy and it's all slightly sinister. (laughs) It's also... It's kind of like more of an old school website. Like, what are we? Are we in Web 3.0 or something now? It's more, it very much reminds me of a website I would go to back in like the late 90s when every website was so different and they were all so interesting and the designs weren't standardized. And now a lot of times you go to a website and it's, you know, text on a white background and maybe there's a heading image and whatever. So it's Mm -hmm. just, it's nice. It looks
2: better than a 90s website, but it is equally as fun, I should say. Yeah,
0: it's. It's a very Thank cool you. website.
2: So
1: what you're saying is I've got a period website. Yeah. Yes. yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh.
2: Yes. Yeah, I guess it is a period website. Reenactment enactment website, yes. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my gosh. It's it's wearing period costume. Yeah. But that's that's where I just wanted to let you know I'm not being uh, creepy. I, I wasn't stalking you your entire life. I've, I know you lived in an old house because it said so on your website. Um, We love spooky people. I love spooky people, like capital S, capital P. Um, I feel like you're in that club. Oh, the P for people, not sp. Spooky. Oh yeah, not spooky, but spooky people. Mm-hmm. Was was the home you lived in part of what drew you to old things slash creepy things? Or I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. I
1: I mean, it was a ridiculous house. It was up on a hill and gray <laughs> and actually kind of gothic looking and had wainscotes which had big chocolate brown spiders in it and mice, etc. And when the wind blew, it used to make a strange moaning sound, which used to really freak out guests. And we just got kind (laughs) of used to it.
2: It sounds a bit like my house minus the spiders. My house is fine. Come on over.
1: (laughs) It it was kind of implausible looking then. So I I think that almost certainly gave me a taste for the Gothic, but also a sense that Mm -hmm. the Gothic was something you could live in. Mm. It was something that... Mm. You could inhabit and would have its own day-to-day rules and um, could be somebody else's normal.
2: Mm-hmm. And it was the past surrounding you. Yeah.
1: And it's the sort of place where you absolutely would expect to see some sort of a ghost. And did I? Did I heck? <laughs> Not as much as a spectral bean.
2: So I, I think I'm,
1: oh. <laughs> I am to the conclusion I'm just as psychic as a brick.
2: I, I feel the same. Spectral bean. First of all, great punk band name, stealing it. (laughs) Continue, Rachel. Okay.
0: Jackie and I frequently talk about ghosts. (laughs) I don't know why. On the podcast, we frequently talk about ghosts. And we have kind of talked through our opinions, which for me, I don't believe in ghosts at all. And I'm not, I would sleep in a graveyard. I would go to a haunted house. But as soon as I saw a hint of a ghost, I would immediately believe in them and I would run away. Whereas Jackie, you believe in ghosts, don't you? Or like- you Don't you believe in ghosts, even though intellectually you're like, no, I don't. But in your heart, you 100%
2: do. Here's the thing. I, I always wish I just wish I could like I want to. And sometimes but I, I feel the same as Francis. Other people seem to have like this ability to pick up on things. And I don't have that. But I want it so bad. And I'm so jealous. I've never seen a ghost, but I do have dreams that are sometimes quite creepy about my house. Ooh, what (laughs) kind of dreams? The dreams tend to... So my house is from 1888. It's also up on a hill. It was gray until last year. I wanted it painted white so that the pumpkins would pop more. This was (laughs) legitimately the reason. Um, And uh, yeah, so it's it's spooky. It's creepy. People in the neighborhood call it the haunted house because it was abandoned for a long time before I moved in. I have dreams that there are rooms and whole wings of the house that I have forgotten about and in the dream mm. I discover them and I think oh no oh no that's why I don't go here like that's <laughs> not we're not supposed to go there it's like house of leaves if you've ever read that I sort of but it's it's a it's a shape shifting house that is it's got some parts that you shouldn't go to and and then I wake up and I think what is wrong? I shouldn't go there. <laughs> <laughs> what is wrong? Um, so yeah, I don't know. But you never saw a ghost. No, I mean, yeah. like
1: like you, I find the idea of ghosts extremely appealing from from an imaginative point of view. I, I like the hmm. idea of them probably considerably more than I'd like the experience of actually meeting any. But because I because <laughs> I know I like the idea and would want to believe in them, they won't come to I you. I think I would be very hard to convince. I would I would uh, have to overcompensate uh, for that and demand a lot of evidence and and do a lot of looking for rational explanations. <laughs> yeah,
2: maybe that's why we haven't seen any maybe we have seen some and we just thought, "Nah, no, that wasn't it." I, have you written any ghost stories? Skinful of shadows. Yes, Skinful of Shadows oh, has wherever, a lot okay. of
0: ghosts. Oh yeah. Like very prominent characters in the book. A question that I had been thinking about while reading Unraveler is you only have one sequel book, I believe. All the others are standalones. Yes. And you only have one that's set in like contemporary, whatever. Everything else, every time I read it, I'm like, this must have taken so much research. And also the worlds that are less like ours, like the world of Unraveler, you really think through the logic of like, how would it be this way and why? You don't really have a society where something happens and the reader is like, oh, she just did that because it's cool or interesting, and I don't know why. You 100% or I 100% am like, oh, of course. So the way that the government is set up in Unraveler, which is very interesting, but it's like a response to their society being surrounded by all these like ghosts and ghouls and things. And I'm like, oh, yeah, obviously this is how their government would work. It makes perfect sense. And it's just, it feels very textured, I guess. So I'm always wondering, like, how can you bear to do all this for one book? And then you're like, <laughs> goodbye, <laughs> let me do it again. Well, it's partly because world building is the fun bit or one of the fun bits, one of the many
1: fun oh, okay. bits. <laughs> um, I really enjoy it. And then I do battle with the book for really quite a long time and eventually become sick of it. And so, I, so that, that's one of the reasons why I'm extremely extravagant when it comes to worlds. You know, I, I create them, use them for one book, and then throw them away, <laughs> make a new one. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's true that I don't recycle as much as I possibly should. Oh, it's, it's up to you. It's <laughs> totally up to you. But Keep making yeah. great worlds. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you said that you, you felt that um, the world felt convincing and so forth. There is always more material in terms of the background mm. and the setting that doesn't get into the book. And certainly, in terms of unraveler, uh, there was actually quite a lot more in the first draft mm. about the the history of the um of the nation and the uh, the evolution of the government, etc., which I had
0: to cut out for pace but they but Mm. I always know more than I've put in (laughs) do do you ever consider releasing some of that like like supplementary Uh, material I
2: mean it sounds like it would just be you know like oh this is just a ploy to make money off of like let me but people want it it and would buy it just
0: put it on your blog
2: (laughs) or don't (laughs) do it for free (laughs) it's it's your intellectual ideas and people want them you know like why not sure
0: (laughs) I guess what I'm Thinking. what I'm thinking is that if you were going to release it for publication, of course, if it's stuff that you've cut or like ideas you've had, you'd pro- probably feel pressured to like shape it. But if you were just like, eh, here you go, <laughs> you just put it out there.
1: <laughs> well, sometimes the whole purpose of of pieces of text like that is for the author to know how everything mm-hmm. works so that they can then seed in mm-hmm. the hints that, that show right. how the world works so that actually people can slightly work it out. Um, and mm. just to give the feeling that the, the world is concrete for the, for for the person who's mm. reading it, and then it can be taken out. It's it's sort of already done its
2: job. Yeah. Mm. I see what you mean. I, I feel like I've said this before. I write poetry, obviously not professionally, but, you know, there's this pretty common idea of like you write the first draft of the poem and it's going to go through many iterations, but you kind of take out the scaffolding at a certain point. You take out like the first few lines and some explanation here and there. And it's like, okay, maybe those were like fine lines on their own, but like you don't you don't need that. You need that to create the poem, but it's not part of the finished product. So maybe that's yeah. kind of what you're saying there. Yeah. I was fascinated to see that your first book... Uh, was published because of theft. Um, <laughs> friendly, friendly thievery. Um, someone basically made you show it to a publisher. Yes. You wrote a book in your spare time and didn't want to show it to a publisher. I, I'm curious about that. You must have put in so much work, you know, but you weren't, were you not planning to publish it or show it to anyone? That one was an experiment. Uh, I mean, I, I
1: had sent off a lot of short stories to sort of editors, magazines, competitions before that. In mm. fact, I'd been doing that since I was 16 years old. Um, but I had been meeting recently with the with friend in question, and we'd been originally considering writing something together and then discovered that our ideas and... Our, uh, our styles didn't really gel. I mean, it was very productive. We, we, we generated lots of ideas in our conversations and then we realised we did not have a book idea. We had, two, we had two book ideas. And then we decided to keep meeting up and just write our, our own books and provide each other with feedback. And my friend, bless her, said, by the way, have you noticed that yours is a children's book? And I hadn't. Wow. And at the point where she pointed that out, A lot of things became clear to me and the whole book came to life in my head and I started to see my main character much more clearly and got quite excited about it. But as far as I was concerned, it was an experiment. So I Mm -hmm. produced five chapters and my friend said, that's enough to send to um, a publisher. And I said... No, it isn't, and it's rubbish, and it's just an experiment. <laughs> and I'm going to play around with it a bit more, and then I'm probably going to bury it in an unmarked grave. Oh! And so she stole my
2: chapters and took them to her editor. Bless her. <gasps> That's a good friend,
0: and it, it worked out. Yes,
2: or a terrible friend, but it, in this case, I don't it's a know good how friend.
0: you feel about the friend at this point. But if you would like to promote her work, oh, yes, her name is Rhiannon Lassiter, uh, and she's extremely good. Uh, she has
1: very varied output. My favorite of her books are, are Ghost of a Chance. And Bad Blood. A lot of her books are YA, and uh, a lot of them, but not
2: all, have supernatural elements to them. So you didn't balk at all at the idea of this being a children's book. You weren't like, no, this is a, this is a very serious ad- a book for very serious adults. You you were like, no, this actually opens up a whole world yeah, for you. Absolutely. Did it change the plot, the style, or both?
1: Um, Not that much. I, I mean, yeah. I don't tend to dumb down for my younger mm-hmm. readers because I kind of assume they're smart. Well, exactly. That's why
2: I like it. I also assume that they can <laughs> yeah. actually
1: handle some complexity and some pretty dark yeah. subjects. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I mm-hmm. can I can remember what I enjoyed reading when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I actually don't want to do is be patronizing. Right.
2: But how, so when you said it came to life and you became more excited about it, what, what about that kind of changed things for you internally?
1: Uh, I think the tone that I'd been reflectively using started to make a bit mm. more sense. And a lot of it was my yeah. heroine. At the point where I realized my heroine was 12 then I got mm. much more sense of where she was in her life, what had been happening to her already. Uh, oh, and she developed a goose. Um, <laughs> and I th- so I think I think getting a, a sudden rush of ideas of her story made me a lot more enthusiastic about the whole thing. Okay,
2: so it didn't necessarily change what was going on, but it changed like how you conceptualized, like, oh, this this person I'm writing is actually much younger than I originally imagined her. Yeah, and that opens up some possibilities. Okay. That's awesome.
0: Now, you also don't, in a lot of your books, there's very little romance. There is like a wonderful romance in Unraveler, but it's like sort of off the page and it's between none of the main characters. But I'm wondering: Is it that you're just you're not particularly interested in it, or children don't really care, so you feel free to just not worry about it, or what's um, have you? Is it just it hasn't really fit in your books so far? Yeah. Where where is the love, Francis? That's what Rachel wants to know.
1: <laughs> As you say, there are some romances in my books; they just don't tend to involve the protagonists. Um, they mm-hmm. don't <laughs> tend to be centre stage. They're not the main thing that's going on. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's a dearth of books. Where there's a romance mm-hmm. that's central. so do not I d I don't I, I don't feel like I'm I'm failing to fill a terrible gaping hole.
0: or <laughs> um, well, I I definitely agree. I'm just, I guess, because there are so many books that include romance for the protagonists, that would be the reason for me where I'm wondering, is this a deliberate choice or it just happens that way for you? A lot of the time it just,
1: it just kind of happens. I just end up writing protagonists who have other things on their mind, like survival and revolution.
2: (laughs) Yeah, romance kind of feels to me like a, a whole separate type of story or a whole separate type of strategy for telling a story because, You either put your characters through something very harrowing and see how they grow or fail or both, or they make intentional choices and see what the, you know, outcomes of that are, but you can't really intentionally fall in love and... Romance kind of just happens to you, but it's not quite the same as necessarily going through a a difficult experience, you know. So it can be difficult, but in and of itself, it's not quite, you know, the hero's journey. So I can see how that may not always fit in.
1: Well, I mean, not everyone wants to read about romance. So Mm -hmm. it's probably nice that they have some options where they don't have to.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's another author. I think she's written three books now. And I've read them all, and they're very good. I think they're also YA. And she has done interviews where she discusses that she's asexual. And so in her earlier books, she did have romance. But lately, she's totally phased it out. So her most recent book had none at all. And I was like, oh, this is is very interesting because her character is just not – doesn't have time for it. (laughs) She's busy dealing with a lot of other things. I have seen more people, like, more writers saying, yeah, like, I would like to write a young adult book that doesn't have not even just no love triangle, but doesn't have a love interest at all. Mm -hmm. I can't guarantee that
1: none of my books will end up with some kind of romance for the main character.
2: I would
0: love to read anything that you write, (laughs) honestly, at this point. (laughs) Hey, everyone. I hope you're enjoying our interview with Francis Harding. I can tell you, speaking from the future, that I really
2: enjoyed it. And I speaking from the past, I know that I already enjoyed it, and I'm probably going to keep enjoying it, too. Yep. And I'm sure you will also continue to enjoy it. We just wanted to
0: jump in real quick to say that if you are enjoying it, there are a few things you can do that are really helpful for us. The first is just give us a rating review on Apple Podcasts or a thumbs up on Spotify if that's how you listen. Tell your friends and family. But also, if you would like, go to patreon.com slash Cannon Canon is spelled C-A-N-O-N and consider becoming a patron because you'll get access to all of our bonus content we have some great episodes we have some little blog posts that sort of thing and it just really really helps us out in terms of making the show so any of that we would love it and appreciate it thanks so much guys back to the episode back to francis
2: how long does it take you to come up with uh, and i'm sure that you know these ideas percolate in one form or another for a long time and sometimes they come to the forefront and sometimes they don't but like how do you formulate an entire new world cuz like rachel said you're not just sticking with one and expanding upon it for years and years and years when you have one that comes to you how do you do it how do you <laughs> Well, as you say, there's, there's definitely percolation. Yeah. When, when I when I read Deep Light, when I said like there's certain words I get stuck on and I just read over and over, Godware is obviously a very important term in that book, means something specific. And I could not stop reading that word over and over because it's like you those two words together never go together. They're <laughs> totally separate realms. One's like technology and one is God. So it was like this idea that just was so delicious to me. Well,
1: words are the most interesting when they're slightly surprised. Yeah, I, I like yeah. throwing words together in ways that they weren't expecting. Right,
2: <laughs> which feels kind of poetic. So, I mean, yeah, how, how does that conceptualization process work for you?
1: Um, there's very definitely a, a slow percolation process where I will have idea fragments or bits mm-hmm. of story or interesting facts or things I want to use in some way at some point that will sit around in my head for years sometimes quite a few years mm. and I won't necessarily know what to do with them. But there'll be a point where I have perhaps a core concept or perhaps I will take some of my story fragments and start trying to attach them to each other in usually unlikely ways. And these will then sort of spark off each other and and start generating more material. You know, when I found the ones mm. that actually that I haven't seen in combination and that bring each other to life, then I can start Working out from from that centre. So, for example, a face like glass is based on three different fragmentary ideas, none, none of which were quite enough to be the heart of a book in their own right. Hmm. Underground city that might be sentient and is is certainly you know, topologically disobedient, um, <laughs> which nobody is allowed to leave, nobody's allowed to enter. So that's one idea. So an island. <laughs> yes, like a subterranean island. Another idea: luxuries. And delicacies so exquisite that their effects are almost like magic and the artisans who make them. Uh, The third idea, a community where people don't have natural expressions and have to learn it. And therefore, every expression is assumed. Effectively, a city full of perfect liars, except for one person, one girl, who has an extremely expressive face and basically can't lie.
2: (laughs) So those were the three
1: ideas that I'd had sitting around in my head for ages and the setting only really started coming together at the point where I realised they were all the same book. Hmm. And then you start combining them, and then you start following each of them through to their um, logical but b- bizarre conclusions, and mm-hmm. trying to work out how how everything would function. And one asks oneself a lot of a lot of boring questions like, where do they get their water? Where do they get their light? Where do they get their air? What, what about money? But the answers don't have to be boring. The answers can involve enormous mechanisms drawing up water from underground rivers and giant glowing Venus fly traps um, and 25-hour <laughs> clocks and etc.
2: Wow. That was a, that was a great answer. Thank you. I feel like that really honestly helped illustrate like, okay, that's, that's a very specific example. And you know, those things, they don't necessarily fit neatly into categories, right? It's not like, well, here's a time, a setting and a person, um, Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, loosely you've got like your character idea and those sorts of things. But gosh, I just, I wish we could study, I wish we could study brains like yours, (laughs) like just what's going on in there. I just want to know. So do I sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
0: because if you knew how you did it you could do it on purpose more regularly
2: (laughs) seems like you're doing it pretty regularly
0: (laughs) well your ideas so you said that you're writing a book and by the time you're done you're like i'm sick of this do you start getting ideas for the next book while you're working on the previous one or do you kind of let yourself let your brain empty out and slowly fill up again and then you're like ah time to start i have well as i say
1: i have idea fragments before that and i sometimes have some Mm. notion of which ones are most promising and which ones i might move on to but i don't sit properly kind of going through my brain and finding the strange things and trying to fit them together uh, until I've actually at least got rid of the the first draft mm. and I, I I don't hate the book continually while I'm writing it it's usually <laughs> oh good about <laughs> yes uh, it's usually about two-thirds of the way through the first draft there's there's a point where I I run out of the momentum enthusiasm <laughs> and become convinced it was a dreadful idea and that you know I hate it and everyone else will hate it and they will turn up outside my uh, my house with flaming torches and pitchforks and throw rocks at me. Oh, no.
2: Well, they don't know where you live. We've established yeah, that. Yes, so. and I think that's the only reason
1: that hasn't happened.
2: <laughs> Rachel, do you notice when you're reading her books that two-thirds of the way through you're like, oh, this author seems sick of this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. Do you, do you hate it from that point until you're done? Or you hate it then, then you get back into it and you hate it again? Is it a cycle or are you just at that point you're like, okay, this is the period where I'm not going to be enjoying this anymore?
1: <laughs> Certainly for writing the the rest of that first draft, um, mm. I will I will gradually hate it more and more, particularly during the period oh. where I am five chapters from the end. And I do say period because mm. the end recedes before me. I <laughs> managed to keep oh, no. writing chapters and still be five chapters from the end for quite some time. Oh, no. <laughs> um, you know, pe- people around me used to be sh- hearing me shouting, die, die, why won't you die at my own book? Um, <laughs> Was this the spiders or... The book or both? Uh, the, or?
2: It, it's, it's
1: all of them. It's Ugh. all of them except Cookie Song. The only one I never ended up hating was Cookie Song for some reason. I don't know why. Hmm.
2: Interesting. It seems like this is an important part of your process. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> yes. Unfortunately for you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Apparently. And then I kind of, I have a break from it and I, I almost start to sort of recover equilibrium and then the book comes back and I go back to hating it again. Um, I usually <laughs> only start to forgive it for existing at the point where, somebody that I don't know actually shows some signs of liking it particularly if that somebody is one of my
0: younger readers Mm. so once it's been published that's when the tides turn yes
2: (laughs) yes
1: I mean the absence of crowds outside my house throwing rocks you know also helps (laughs) that's that's also a good thing
2: I feel the same way about this podcast it's like (laughs) everybody that we know can say it's great and I'm like yeah whatever but if a stranger says it's great I'm like yeah Yeah, I want your opinion.
0: (laughs) Also, Jackie will will try to, like, make strangers into friends. So if I tell her, for example, like... I'm in a quite large Facebook group and someone that I don't (laughs) know, but who I'm in the group with told me like, hey, she messaged me out of the blue and was like, hey, I listened to your podcast. I really like it. I've been listening to it. And I was like, look, Jackie, someone likes it. And she's like, yeah, but you're friends with her. Like we have not spoken. (laughs) We are in a large group together. (laughs) This is a stranger.
2: (laughs) I try to make strangers into friends all over the place, though. In a a negative sense. in terms of the podcast Oh, in a
0: positive sense too anyway so based on what you said in terms of you particularly like it when you get a younger reader loving your books i really admire children's literature as a separate thing in general like it's literature but also like it does have different goals and it's not exactly the same but i really like it i don't think it's you know like it shouldn't be patronizing it doesn't need to be dumbed down for children which is why I love your books so much. But for you, it seems like maybe if an adult likes your books, you're like, that's nice that you enjoyed it. But <laughs> <laughs> for a child, you're like, I did write this for you. So <laughs> this is my preferred audience. Yeah, I mean, I I write my books for a younger
1: version of me because it is much easier to think of a single reader than a demographic. You know, if I if I tried to... <laughs> Imagine myself writing for a demographic. I think I'd just be foetal on the floor with stage fright. (laughs) Whereas younger me, who was quite an odd little girl, you'd never guess. No. (laughs) I'm I'm writing the sort of things she enjoyed. Dark things, strange things, fantasy, mystery, sometimes spies, surprises, Mm -hmm. betrayals. You know, all the good stuff. Mm-hmm. So yes, my primary target audience is my younger readers. I mean, adults are very welcome too. They they absolutely are. <laughs> I do say that my books are for anybody who, anybody who enjoys them. But when I'm writing,
0: what I have in mind is a younger reader. So it's always it's more satisfying when you're like, oh, yes, the arrow hit the bullseye. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That that is lovely. Yeah. I think if it helps, obviously, I'm an adult now. But when I first read your book, I think I was 15. (laughs) So I've just stuck with you. And, you know, 15 year olds, they are children. Like sometimes they like to think that they're not, but they are. And since I live in the US, obviously, a lot of times there's a big gap between when the books come out and I'm just like, agonizing. Like, when is this coming over here? (laughs) When am I going to get to read it? (laughs) But I've been, you know, I guess I've been reading your books for like 15 years now. So
2: that's been a while. (laughs) Thank you very much. I noticed um, you said that like when you were writing as a young child, you you know, you said you like to write really dark things or, you know, for a child, pretty dark (laughs) and strange things. Um, One of your stories was about like a poisoning and some betrayal. And this was like a very young child that you wrote this on a single page. Do you? still have that story? I've got it somewhere, yes. And uh, I was I oh, six. Okay, because... <laughs> <laughs> our erstwhile producer, who no longer is our producer, but we still talk with him, he has he had a podcast called Inside the Mind of a Child Genius, which I think he's no longer currently. Ironic making, but title. <laughs> he, but he probably Yeah, ironic. He he likes to, you know, talk about them and analyze them. And they're so <laughs> funny and sometimes so ingenious. That story would be so perfect for that. But I just wanna read it regardless. If you ever were to publish that as a broadside, I would purchase it broadside <laughs> I'm,
1: i am yeah. hiding all my juvenilia i mean i've i'm keeping it i am i am mm-hmm. keeping the the full length novel i wrote when i was 13 it is not very good it is handwritten in pencil in a pad <laughs> no i'm i am not intending to show any of those to anyone <laughs> also, the stories that I sent off and did not get uh, accepted when I was sixteen. Also,
0: not showing those. <laughs> is there anything you wrote as like a pre-adult where you're like, actually, this is pretty good, or this has something? There's some
1: ideas. The stories themselves didn't work. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I, I I didn't have the the supplementary knowledge. To actually, well, you know, I was, in some cases, I was writing uh, car chases, and I didn't know anything about cars. I was writing gunfights, so I didn't know anything about guns. <laughs> I was writing police procedurals, so I didn't know anything about police procedurals. I didn't have the internet. Mm-hmm. And
2: your editors were saying things like, you know, you don't actually throw the guns at your opponent, you have to do something else with <laughs> well, them. Well, <laughs>
1: I was very young, so I didn't have an editor. You know, this, is, this was me writing yeah. at kind of age, you know, 13, 14, 15. So a lot of the actual stories didn't quite work
2: but there were some there were some concepts <laughs> that's the charming things about them yeah i think Sometimes the ideas, you know, not having the supplementary or the background knowledge that you have in as an adult. Sometimes I feel like that improves the ideas because you feel so much less, you know, fettered by the expectations and what already exists. It's not like, oh, well, that already is out there, so I can't do this. It's just you're just doing whatever comes out of your brain and you don't care if it's good or if it's been done before. I bet they I bet they have some merit. That's all I'm saying.
1: <laughs> sometimes the purpose of stories like that are to be the, the things you write so you can then write something better. I mean I I am firmly mm-hmm. of the opinion that no writing is wasted. It's like it's like running a tap sometimes you need to get past the cold to get things before you can get things to warm up. Oh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Living where I live I was thinking yeah sometimes you've got to get the like muddy, gunky red stuff out of the tap before you have to get the good stuff. That actually happened more in the South, actually, because of all the clay. Well, anyway. So
1: yes, okay, so in your case, the terrifying blood water. I mean.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I don't have lead poisoning. It's fine. Um, (laughs) Rachel and I met when we were 16 and we were um, in a. It was a
0: summer camp. It was a poetry summer camp, essentially, for us. (laughs)
2: Yeah, we've talked about writing something together. Did you ever actually end up writing anything with another person or was it just that one attempt and it didn't work out.
1: Yeah, no, I haven't really. Um, I mean, I'm very glad we attempted it because it turned out to be mm. extremely fruitful um, for both of us. But no, I haven't. <laughs> I haven't produced anything collaboratively. I don't know whether that means I'm just not so good at collaborative visions, or my brain's too
0: weird, or something. <laughs> Jackie and I, we did talk about like, oh, here's an idea. And we kind of bounced ideas around for a, like a little writing project. And I think we did a good job in terms of refining ideas. But I'm like thinking about it. I'm like, I have no idea how the two of us
2: would even handle Trying to write something together. Well, that's the thing. I, I know that we have very different styles, but I thought maybe that could be a strength. I guess we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we'll see. Yeah, Maybe we won't. Or it could end our friendship. <laughs> Jelton <and> Hark again. <laughs> Are you working on a novel now, Francis?
1: I am. Uh, I'm at relatively early stages, mm-hmm. and I'm afraid I'm going to have to be slightly mysterious and, and not say too much about it. But you'll be unsurprised to hear that it is YA fantasy, and it's quite dark. And <laughs> nice. it's got a
0: historical flavor. Hey! <laughs> I love it. Is there, I mean, maybe, I know you don't want to talk about the book you're writing now very much, but do you have an idea that's been percolating, like a fragment that's been percolating for like a really, really long time that you've never been able to figure out what to do with, that you would like to share, even a tiny little thing?
1: There were plenty in my head. <laughs> None that I think I'd want to share. I always feel <laughs> slightly superstitious about mm. it, if you know what I mean. I don't. I, it's like, I don't want to show it till it's
2: cooked. Right. <laughs> Understandable. It's like a souffle if you open right. the it's... oven before it's done. The whole thing deflates. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly. I've never made a souffle. So once you've got
0: one going, you're like, this will go somewhere. I just don't know where yet. So there's nothing where you thought mm. about it for like 10 years and you're like, eh, not interested anymore. <laughs> You're saving them all up Yeah I mean there's
1: there was the idea of a ghost dancing bear okay. That hung around in my head <laughs> For really quite a lot of years And I had no idea what to do with it I'd learnt about the way dancing bears have been treated mm. historically And got quite angry about it Because it's not good Uh, I developed this idea of a dancing bear that would get to come back in spectral form after its death and get a bit of revenge. Mm -hmm. And even at that stage, I'd had an idea that it would form a sort of a bond with the first human being it had ever encountered that was suitably angry on its behalf. Mm. So, I I mean, this wasn't enough for a story by itself, but it was just there in my head Mm. for really quite a few years. Mm-hmm. And it was only when I started plotting out A Skinful of Shadows and had this idea of a family given to tactical possession as a sort of hereditary feature yeah. that I suddenly realized that this is where my ghost bear went. So yes, hmm. e- even, even things that have been hanging around in my head for about a decade, <laughs> they, they quite often find their place.
2: That just opens up so many other possibilities. You know, when you said that, I immediately thought about, like, ghost Shamu comes back and is <laughs> wreaking havoc. <laughs> you know, but there's... <sighs> so many other possibilities but I I love that how it that did. came together it's, it's in a published sort of. book it definitely came together yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah yeah well it sounds like it's not exactly exactly how you originally envisioned it though or maybe it is it kind of is it's just that I didn't oh, okay. know
1: I didn't know who the bear would be aligning to mm. uh, and then <laughs> when I started plotting out a skin full of shadows and started to get a sense of my main heroine I thought Oh, I, th- I think she might be my bear friend
2: <laughs> I guess is there anything that you know you were kind of hoping to talk about or anything we haven't asked about anything you've been dying to say that you're just like gosh no one ever thinks to ask this question
1: uh, no I've been entirely happy
0: with the the freeform flow of this this, this, <laughs> has, been, this has been fun so far <laughs> I guess the the only other question that I had thought about ahead of time that I wanted to ask was that reading your books to me, they kind of read like the books of a person who just would read whatever as a child. I don't know if that was the case for you, but for me at least, I grew up on an island and there's a tiny little library, so I very quickly ran out of children's books. So sometimes we would go to another library on the mainland that was bigger, but in the tiny little library, I would just read the children's books. Then I would move move on to like older books, then I would go to like the mythology section or I would read some ghost stories. So I was just kind of jumping all over the library. And that's kind of how years felt to me, but it's possible you had plenty of books to keep you occupied without having to go look for
2: different things. I grew up in a town of 300 surrounded by hundreds of miles of farmland, so it was kind of an island. <laughs> also,
1: <laughs> well, there certainly were I mean there were a lot of children's books and you know I certainly managed to chop my way through those but also my parents just owned a lot of books mm. and certainly in in the big old creepy house there were some very high bookshelves at the top of the stairs which even had a a,
2: a ladder up against them um Ooh, I was going to ask if there was a ladder I'm so glad there was. <laughs> there was there was
1: it wasn't it wasn't one of those sliding ladders unfortunately that kind of glide along the bookshelves mm-hmm. um it was just a standing ladder but at the same time you could cut of scale up and down and, and, and retrieve Ooh. books. So of course I did, because I was very curious. So I was pulling things off shelves and <laughs> reading them, uh, you know, aside from the, the little children's books that were, were definitely mine. Basically, I started on quite a lot of Victorian literature. Um, the Sherlock Holmes stories were my gateway. <laughs> I, <laughs> I remember reading The Hound of the Baskervilles right at the top of the ladder. <laughs> Just
0: standing at the top and yeah. Like
2: didn't even make it down the ladder. You were like, yes. open it up. Yeah, Rachel, that's the way to make your kids read books or get them to want to read books. So Put you them can't up somewhere the- high oh. where they have to climb. <laughs> well, just because they're going to be like, I want to go up the ladder. And then yeah. once they get up there, they're going to be like, all right, well, let's
0: check it out. We have quite high ceilings. I think it's like 12 foot ceilings downstairs. And the bookshelves go all the way to the top. So I actually, I have to use a ladder <laughs> to get up there. So I think I'm, I'm in good shape for now. The part I don't really understand is when parents are like, I want my kids to read things that are appropriate. I feel like at least for me, I've found that a kid can decide what's appropriate for them and they yeah. they usually do a pretty good job. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's my view. Kids are very good at self-censoring and just being kind of
1: sensible about these things.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And especially if this is your home and your books, I mean, just don't, uh, don't put horrible books in your house if you don't <laughs> want them to read them. I don't know. I could understand
0: if you're someone who loves to read erotica, for example. You might want to hide those a little better. Right.
2: <laughs> but most other things. Put those at the bottom of the shelf, honestly, because the kid doesn't want to look at the bottom. They want to climb to the top. <laughs> Put the wholesome stuff up there.
0: Well, <laughs> I did want to ask if there's anything that you read and loved and you find that it has influenced your writing, or is there anything that you really hate? Because, you know, these authors are all dead. It's okay. You're not going to – I don't think you'll get canceled or anything if you're like, <laughs> I've always found these books to be terrible.
2: <laughs> yeah, you're so positive and kind and I just – Yeah, be mean. <laughs> gosh. Yeah, is there anything mean in there? Oh.
1: I can't think of any I hate. I mean, I can think of an awful <laughs> lot of books that I read as a kid that absolutely, definitely have influenced my writing, mm-hmm. and in some cases the way I see the world. So I can. I, can, I mean, I loved I loved Susan Cooper, mm-hmm. uh, Alan Garner. So I say d- I don't know how well these are known in the US. So there was an, uh, a writer called uh, Leon Garfield mm-hmm. who basically wrote. Um, historic novels for kids, hmm. and had very you know very strong, often sort of nineteenth century or eighteenth century feel, and lots of peril, and <laughs> press gangs, and highwaymen and pickpockets and attempted murders and, and good historical adventure stories. And I think I can probably blame him for <laughs> my interest in historical stories. <laughs> I love Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Very fun. Late teens, I got into Terry Pratchett. There's uh, an author called Catherine Storr, who wrote a book called Marianne Dreams, a nicely creepy book that I read when I was about nine which scared the Dickens out of uh, out of me and which I adored. Uh, and when I was about 10, my favorite book was It Down by Richard Adams.
0: I had that in my head as you were talking. I was like, I wonder if she's going to bring it <laughs> and, and there were loads of other authors I could
1: mention too. <laughs>
2: Do you have, we've talked about a couple different strategies that different authors have, like Charles Dickens went on these long, long <laughs> walks and that's where he kind of came up with his ideas and then he'd come home and write the ideas from the walks. Some people do other things instead. Do you have anything like that? Just maybe a walk through the woods or do you walk through like a historical part of town? I don't know. I'm being very um, literal, I guess, but I just wonder. I do
1: walk. I do walk. I find it really helps yeah. with sorting out plot knots in my mm-hmm. head. And it doesn't actually matter quite so much where I'm walking. But yes, it, it, does, it does help process things and stops me being hypnotized by the screen. <laughs> and sometimes yeah. sometimes it throws up ideas. One of the central ideas for the Light Tree came to me while I was walking. I remember stopping halfway across a bridge and realizing that I had the, well, as it were, the, the seed for a story.
2: <laughs> yes, I, I did want to, this is one of the very first things, um, so I have not read The Lie Tree, to be fair, but we had just recently covered Pinocchio on the podcast, and I do wonder if Pinocchio may have been created from the wood of the tree <laughs> that eats the lies. Have you read the Pinocchio
0: book, by the way? Yes. <laughs> What's your opinion? It's dark. It's horrible. Yes, it's
1: really quite dark. It's horrifying. Yeah, things got softened a lot for the yeah, Disney Yeah,
0: And the thing that I keep telling people, here's a little spoiler, but like Pinocchio, he doesn't care about being a real boy until the very end. He doesn't care, <laughs> which is so odd because that is the theme that Carlo colodi like didn't know that the book should have had based on what sticks out to everyone and like what is brought to the forefront
2: in adaptations. Yeah, it's like society has been a good yeah. editor for him. <laughs> But it's a different type of darkness. Like your stories, they don't tend to involve children being just like slapstick violence against children is is (laughs) probably, you know, like it's very dark, but not in the way that your stories tend to be. Did Pinocchio come from the lie tree or? He's a he's a weird little guy, that Pinocchio. I think I told
0: Jackie, if my kids want to read Pinocchio, they're welcome to. But I'm not going to be like, oh, you've got to read
2: Pinocchio. (laughs) Yeah, That one goes in the middle of the shelves. Yeah. Well, it has been such a pleasure talking Mm -hmm. with you. Just everything you said. Somehow you even managed to speak as like lyrically and interestingly (laughs) as you write. So that's fun. I really enjoyed topographically disobedient. What was the other one? Spectral beam. (laughs) So (laughs) many good turns of phrase there. Jackie's (laughs) going to be um,
0: going to jail for performing so much skullduggery just because she's like, I love that word.
2: Oh, yeah. It It is a great word. (laughs) Um, Well, no, thank you so much again. This was really, really um, nice of you to give us your time Mm -hmm. like this. And um, just so fascinating to get to hear a little bit about your process. Well,
1: thank you very much. Thank, thank you for the, the, the very kind words. And thank mm-hmm. you for having me.
0: Yes, we. I'm sure that your the book you're working on now will be wonderful when it finally comes out. And maybe we'll reach out to you again and see if you'd like to come on once we've had a, some more time to like build up questions or things to talk about.
2: Put Push through that two-thirds <laughs> hatred, period, because we know you can thank do you. it. Thank you. I'll do my best.
0: Okay. We have a listener. He has two granddaughters, and he and his wife read them books. And whenever we talk about children's books that we like, he's always like, this is great. I'm going to add it to the list. And I would like to say, Randall, once they're a little bit older, because I think they're two and four now, I really recommend that you get some of
2: Francis Harding's books for them. I think they'll love them. Well, thank you much. That'd be lovely. Yeah. And, and maybe, Francis, if you ever think about... Putting putting out an edible version of some of your books for the very young set yes. like you said
0: uh, chewable Just something for them to nom on
2: yeah a little snack yes snack
1: that's true for the mini me's <laughs> yeah i may have been hungry when i wrote some of those sequences now i think about it
0: yeah you could do um a face like glass you could do a nice little cheese flavored cloth bound version oh yes yeah
2: you know, one thing is that my dog has recently become obsessed with eating my hardcover books, which unfortunately, I think it's because the glue attracts him <laughs> or something apparently some dogs just like they get a taste for books and you can't you can't undo it so (laughs) it's terrible for me yeah so if you could make like maybe a i don't know a kibble flavored one for him too (laughs) i'll see what i can do
0: well no he needs one where the glue tastes bad you want him to stop eating books you don't want to encourage i I want to
2: satiate him on (laughs) books for him and i want him to leave my books Mm -hmm. alone (laughs) get him his own little
0: shelf that he can
2: take the books off chew them (laughs) yes okay take that in under advisement um all right well thank you Thank you so much to Frances Harding for joining us. Yes, thank um, we're you. We're, of course, going to link her wonderful website Brilliant. and you can you can catch that in the show notes.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks so much. Have a great evening, I guess, where you are now. Thank you very much. Thank you. Shall I, shall I press stop? Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. Thank you. All right. We hope you guys had an excellent time listening to our Frances Harding interview. It was so awesome interviewing her. She's like so incredibly funny. Mm-hmm. The most droll. Very interesting person. <laughs> like, yes. I, I mean we've never had an author on where I wasn't like wow, what an interesting person. <laughs> I know. And when I say that I want to study their brains it's a compliment. It's said out of love. It's not like, oh my god, what's wrong with you? It's like, wow. Everybody should How can be like my that? brain be How like How can that? my brain be like that? Yeah. We just had a great time. If you would like to check out Frances's website, you can find her at FrancisHarding.com. It is spelled F-R-A-N-C-E-S-H-A-R-D-I-N-G-E dot com. Frances Harding's Twisted City. It's just a fun website and you can try and solve her little puzzle that she has for yep, you. it's great. Check out her books, of course. Um, you can find a full list of them there.
0: Her latest book is Unraveler, which was just released in the U.S. in January of 2023. <laughs> if you have any kids in your life and you want them to read books, I recommend any of Francis's books. Just look at a synopsis and any of them that jump out out. Give it to a child. Read it for yourself first if you
2: want. It's, it's great. If this is your first time listening to us and you've just joined us, hi, welcome. We're Fire the Cannon. We'd love it if you would follow us on social media and keep listening to us. We're glad that you're here. Our website is Pod dot com. That's canon with two N's, but only one in the middle. C-A-N-O-N. C-A-N-O-N. Yep. That's an easier way to explain it. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted it to be complicated. Uh, you can find us on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at Pod. Our email address is Pod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. You can also catch us on Facebook. We're at Fire the Cannon Podcast.
0: Yes, and if you enjoyed this and you would like to help us continue to make episodes, there are two wonderful ways to do that. One is recommending us to friends and family. The other is going to patreon.com slash fire the cannon and potentially becoming a patron of ours for just a little small amount per
2: month. It really helps us to continue. Right, yeah, and we want to keep making this forever. We
0: use the money to pay for editing, to buy equipment so that we can sound good hours
2: long zoom recordings and that sort of
0: thing yeah it's not a we're not buying expensive luxuries that cause you to hallucinate or whatever
2: (laughs) Francis was talking about (laughs) probably not much cheese either I I use my personal funds for my cheese so Mm -hmm, but if -hmm. you could help us keep making it that's a wonderful way to do it also if you're just joining us and you haven't done this yet we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts Mm -hmm. or a thumbs up on Spotify or both thank you so much even just for listening to this episode it helps a lot so we're glad you're here and we hope you'll come back.
0: Thank you very much. All right. Bye.
2: Bye.